speaker this morning will be speaking to us on contending for the faith. And there are a couple of verses that are relevant to this, one in particular from the book of Jude. And so I'm going to read that verse and then another one from 2 Timothy. Jude 3. Jude only has one chapter, of course, so it's Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and women as well, who will be able to teach others also. Morning, everyone. My name is Chris Martins. I'm a member here at the church. Uh, typically, my wife, Kelly, and I go to the Thirsty Service, so it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Um, I'm one of the conference organizers of the Growing in the Faith conference that we've had here over the weekend, and those of us who braved the snow, the deep snow yesterday to come in, uh, we had a great uh, uh, most of the day yesterday. So uh, I'm going to introduce our speaker today, Mr. Greg Coles. Greg Kokel's from STR, which is Stands for Reason. It's an organization down in the States that trains Christians to be ambassadors for Christ. He's been a radio talk show host for over 25 years, and you can catch him every Tuesday from 4 to 6. You can listen in or call in with any question regarding religion, ethics, and values. And uh, he's an award-winning writer, uh, best-selling author. He's got a new book out called The Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and everything important in between. And it's been uh, described by many of the people that have reviewed the book as the modern day uh, C.S. Lewis mere Christianity, very similar style, great voice, and maybe you can talk a little bit more about that this afternoon. He's also uh, an adjunct um, professor at Biola University. And for me personally, when I first uh, was exposed to Greg, I saw him on a TV show back in about 2003 on a TV show back in Toronto called Valerie Pringle's Test of Faith. And it was at a time that I was really struggling with my own faith. Um, when I saw him on the, on the show, just the way he comported himself as an ambassador, it really dragged me from the trajectory I was going to the tra trajectory where I am now. It's made a huge difference in my life, and hopefully this conference is making a huge difference in people's lives this weekend. He's spoken around the world, and this weekend we're privileged to have him here with us. And it's a privilege to introduce to you Mr. Greg Kokel. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Good morning. So I want to talk about, about another passage. It was read this morning, but um, let me introduce it with this thought. It was about, um, about four years ago, my wife and I sat on a short bench in a small stone church on the outskirts of Oxford, and in a tiny graveyard just outside of that church was a flat tombstone that had the words Clive Staples Lewis etched into the granite. And this pew where my wife and I were sitting was the very same place that C.S. Lewis had sat for years next to his brother Warney every Sunday morning as they worshiped together at Trinity Church. And I think this man C.S. Lewis had a tremendous impact on my own life. Um, was probably more than anyone else in the 20th century, lived out the admonition that I'm going to use as a springboard, the verse, 
as a springboard uh, for my reflections this morning. And it's in Jude 3. It's already been read. Let me read it again. Jude says, Beloved, speaking to, to, to his, his brothers and sisters in Christ, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, and I felt the necessity to write you to appeal, contending earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And I, never before in my lifetime, I've been a Christian 43 years, has this verse been more important for Christians to hear, to consider, and to heed? And let me just point out three quick elements just in the passage you might have noticed. One, he says there's a content. I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. So Jude is referring to a very specific thing that has specific content. Then there's this admonition that he's appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, that you proclaim it, that you guard it, that you defend it. And three, there is, there's a kind of history to this. There's a certain depth to it. It was the faith which was uh, once for all delivered to the saints. We, we have something from the past that is being passed on that we are to, to guard. And I want to tell you why I think Jude's admonition is so timely here at, as we're now in the second decade uh, of the 20th, 21st century. And, and I, I live in the States, and um, these things certainly apply in the States, but I think even more aggressively do they apply to you, more pertinently to you in the country of Canada, because the, cir the circumstances, I think, for Christians are more grave here than they are in the States. Now, we're we're fast behind you, you know. <laughs> We're following your lead in this regard, unfortunately, for, for the followers of Christ in the States. But I, I, the things that I have to say, I think, even have a more vigorous application to your circumstances here. We are in the theological and cultural fight of our lives, to simply um, put it. And that attack is coming from many directions. But it's probably very, a simple way to put it is the attack is coming from two broad fronts. And I'm just going to, if you want to organize it in your notes this way, it's trouble in the world and trouble in the church, all right? Trouble in the world and trouble in the church. And I want to spend the, the brief time I have here talking about what I think that looks like in particular. And then once we get a fix on the problem, I want to offer you a biblical, scriptural antidote to the problem. In other words, what can we do following God's direction to make a difference in light of the trouble in the world and the trouble in the church? So many of you are aware of the first front, the challenge from the outside. We are reminded of it every single day, reading the newspapers, the headlines, the magazines, encountering people in our communities and when we had dinner last night at a really nice restaurant, thank you, it was great, thank you, <laughs> uh, I, I, I bowed for our table and, and said a prayer, and it, it occurred to me, you know, in the States you can do this, and people aren't going to be thinking it's weird, and in some, once in a while a waiter or somebody else from another table might come over to you and say, oh, you love the Lord, we're Christians too, oh, that's great, I was encouraged by seeing you pray and that kind of stuff. But it occurred to me last night, and I got my, uh, you know, affirmations from my host, that isn't going to happen around here. 
You guys are in a whole different kind of environment. Trouble in the world. And there's not only a, a, a not sharing of our Christian worldview, but there is a hostility to it. And we see it from a couple of different areas. That is, there is an attack on the very foundation of the Christian worldview, the existence of God. I mean, our story starts in the beginning. God, if, if there's no God, there's no story, right? We're, we don't even get off the ground. And so you got people like the so-called new atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, uh, some Brits, some Americans, but basically they're influencing the whole Western world with their ideas that God doesn't exist. There are attacks on um, the central player in the drama, Jesus of Nazareth. We have false depictions of Jesus in uh, pretenders to Christianity like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. We have challenges to the existence of Jesus. And this is a very popular notion in the culture now. Jesus never existed. And I'll just tell you something. There is not a single scholar in the field of Jesus' studies, secular or otherwise, that believes this. This is nonsense. This is drivel to educated people in the field. But it's amazing how many people actually believe it, probably because of the Internet. But this is what we're up against. We have an attack on the Bible and the authority base of our views. And in the midst of this attack, there's an increasingly pervasive godlessness and militant relativism in our culture. When I say relativism, I just mean everybody believes you can do your own thing, and that's okay. Except for you guys, you can't do your own thing. That's not okay. You know, it's a little inconsistent there. But there's no right or wrong. It's just a matter of individual. Uh, I, Chris told me something this morning I was really stunned at, you know. It's one thing to have doctor-assisted suicide, right? I mean, I think it's pretty bad, and they just got that in California now. But I understand that though doctor-assisted suicide in this country has been legal for a while, it's not liberal enough. And so people are leaving this country and going to, to Switzerland to commit suicide because it's easier to do there. I, there you go, trouble in the world. And in particular, there's a radical skepticism that people have in the culture that you can know anything with any confidence, especially religious stuff or moral stuff. So that when Christians come and proclaim the kind of message that Jesus himself gave, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through him, that there's a narrow gate, you know, that leads to life and a wide gate that leads to destruction. Few find the first, many find the second. You say that, man, you're in for big trouble. You become right in the, like in the crosshairs of the spiritual battle. And just uh, let me collect, cor uh, correct a misconception here. I'll talk more about this, I think, this, this, this afternoon. Jesus did not come to spread peace and love and establish social justice not why he came. You know one reason I know this? What if I told you that I could take everything that Jesus ever said? He did talk about that in some places. Not as many as people think. But you could take everything he said about the poor and social justice and you could eliminate it from his story and never influence the purpose of Jesus a single bit. Huh? That's exactly what one of his closest followers did. 
the Apostle John wrote the final gospel, the Gospel of John. Some think the preeminent and most glorious characterization of the person and the work of Christ. I agree with that, by the way. And he did not say one single thing that could be construed as helping the poor or advancing social justice. Nothing. Does that mean Jesus didn't care about it? He did care about it. What it means is it's not central. It's not why he came. He came for a different purpose. His words, to seek and save that which was lost, to call sinners to repentance, to give his life a ransom for many. That was what Jesus said his purpose was. And when we say those things, oh, we get in trouble. Oh, Jesus helping the poor, fine, everybody loves us. We give the real reason he came, then we're in trouble. And we're not just wrong, we're dangerous. We're dangerous. We are the enemy. And this, this same theme keeps popping up everywhere I go. Now, I just want you to think about something. 9-11 in the States, of course, it affected everybody emotionally. Either side of the border. We had jumbo jets crashed into the Twin Towers there. We had a, a jet crash into the Pentagon. We had one crash in a field in Pennsylvania on its way probably to the White House or to the Capitol building. That's what it, where it was headed. 2,977 people lost their lives on that day. And I'm telling you, within six months, Islam attained most favored religious status. And it was the Christians that were considered the dangerous ones. I mean, think about it. What religion in our country or yours in our corporate communities has the word phobia attached to it to protect it from criticism? Is it Christian phobia? Hindu phobia. Jew phobia. Buddha phobia. No, it's Islamophobia. But it was Muslims who killed all those people. Can you make any sense of that? There is no sense to be made of that. But this is what we're facing. All of a sudden, we're the bad guys. Trouble in the world. But there's not just trouble in the world. There's trouble in the church as well. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of the world, according to the traditions of men and not according to Christ. But as it turns out, there are all kinds of ways that the world's ideas of reality are seeping into the church. We talked about a, a quite a bit of it yesterday in our, our seminar. <clears throat> there is, uh, among other things, a profound biblical illiteracy in the church. Christians sit in churches all their lives and they do not understand Christianity. You know how I know? Because they cannot deal that is from within their worldview with the two biggest challenges to Christianity. That's the problem of evil and why Jesus is the only way of salvation. They do not realize that our whole story is about the problem of evil. It's not foreign to our story. It's built right in, and our story's not over yet. And Jesus is the only way because he is the only solution to the problem of evil. This fits in our story. If Christians have a hard time answering that, it's because they don't understand the story. Now, if you come this afternoon to the first session, the story of reality, I'm going to lay that out so it's clear. But, but a lot of Christians just don't get that. 
there's a tremendous biblical illiteracy in our Christian community. It's not just with the adults, it's with teenagers too. In 2005, researchers Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote a book called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And what they did is the most massive survey of religious, the religious views of teenagers in America. And they found some very interesting things. They found out, first of all, that there's no generation gap between Christian kids and their parents. It's not like they're battling with each other. They're like close. They believe all the same things. And they're also really pro-religion. 75% of the young people in, in our country, at least, um, are, 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 have a, have, identify with some form of Christianity. Wow, that's a lot. And in fact, they have their quiet times and they go to youth groups and they, they uh, um, go to Sunday thing and they, all Bible studies. That, wow, that's great. Until you start questioning them more closely. And Smith and Denton then found out that they knew nothing about Christianity. Oh, they were doing all these things, but when you start to press them about some of the details, the theological foundations, the things that make the difference, the kind of thing your pastor was just reading about in Romans 8, things he was praying about for us, they don't have a clue. They are struck dumb. I've seen the videos of the interviews. What does Jesus have to do with your, this whole thing? Huh? Uh, hmm, silence. It's, it's so sad. It, it, it choked me up watching this. And Smith and Denton then used three words to describe what their Christianity, these young people's Christianity, had been reduced to. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. That is, religion is about, well, doing good and feeling good and having a relationship with God who wants you to be happy. That's it. Now, why'd they believe that? Because it's the same thing their parents believe. This is not the kind of Christianity that's going to rescue anybody. But it gets worse. Let's see, 2009, so what is that, uh, September? So that's like six and a half years ago. I had an opportunity to be on a stage uh, with a couple of friends of mine, people that I'd done this kind of work with before. One was a Roman Catholic priest. The other one was a Jewish radio talk show host. His name is Dennis Prager. Some of you might know him if you listen to his podcast. A wonderful conservative talk show host, but he's Jewish, very friendly to Christianity. And I've known Dennis for over 25 years, and Greg Coiro was a Capuchin Franciscan friar, Roman Catholic priest. And the goal of this session was for Dennis to ask uh, Father Coiro and myself questions for the Jewish audience that we were standing in front of, some six or 700 um, Jewish people that were assembling for Rosh Hashanah. And the first question that Dennis asked me, and he knew the answers because we've talked about these things before, but he was asking for the audience so that we could give our perspective. And he asked me the very first question of the afternoon, and the question was, is Jesus the only way of salvation? How'd you like to have that one, like Sea of Jews? There were only like six Gentiles in the back, and that was my staff and my wife, you know, that were able to, my staff that was able to make this event. So, so I said, okay, uh, if I told you the right answer just straight out, which is yes, um, you'd get the wrong idea. You would think 
that I'm saying that you folks are going to hell because you're Jews. And maybe I'm glad. So let me try to put it in a different way. We get the mistaken idea that God looks down on the world and he sees different religious clubs and he plays favorites. There's the Jewish club and the Hindu club and the Christian club, blah, blah, blah. And for a long time, his favorite was the Jewish club. Then he got really mad at the Jewish club and now he favors the Christian club and to hell with the rest of them, quite literally. I said, but that's not how God looks at it. He looks down on a world of people he created to be in friendship with him, and we have all rebelled against him in different ways. And so we are all guilty. And so in order to initiate a rescue operation, God became a man himself in the person of Jesus to live the life that we have not lived, and then to take the punishment as the Pascal offering, if you will, that we deserve. And so all the punishment that we deserve went on to that substitute. And here I'm making references to the Jewish sacrificial system, which they were familiar with. And so then he took the punishment so we could be forgiven. Now, that's a free gift. You can receive that as an act of God's grace. But if you say no to the forgiveness that Jesus offers because he paid, then you pay. <laughs> Either he pays or you pay. That's the way it works. And that's not going to be a pretty sight when you pay for your own crimes against God such as they are. Now, I think that's a pretty clear characterization of the gospel. And you could hear a pin drop in the audience when I was done. Not because I was so eloquent. I don't think these folk ever heard it like that before. I think they'd heard some religious slogans that sounded anti-Semitic, but that was it. And now the microphone is passed to, Dr. To, to Father Greg Coiro. Now it's his chance to answer the question, is Jesus the only way of salvation? And he said, yes, Jesus is the only way of salvation. And in fact, the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. However, not to worry. You Jewish people are actually in the church even though you don't realize it. Because you are here now practicing your religion the best way that you know how. And so you are actually beneficiaries of Jesus even though you reject him. Now that's the Roman Catholic view. It is now, since Vatican II in the mid-60s. In other words, you can be, you can be under the, the blood of Christ, if you will, even though you reject him. Because all people of other religions doing the best they can with the religion they have are forgiven. Now, is this biblical or is it not biblical? Everything that I gave of my right hand to them in the truth of the gospel, Father Coiro took back with the left. In fact, even behind my staff sitting in the back, a gentleman whispered to his wife, don't worry, honey, it's a freebie. In other words, whatever Kokel said, no worries. We've just gotten our confidence from the priest. We're covered. Now, we can be mad at the Roman Catholics for that view. It's called inclusivism. It's a name for it. But you realize that half of Christians in Protestant Christianity believe the same thing? That it doesn't matter what faith you follow? 
basically teaches the same thing. Different faiths will get you equally to God. Yeah, trouble in the world, but trouble in the church. So what do we do? How do we fulfill Jude's exhortation to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, I think Paul gives a simple two-part solution for these challenging times in 2 Timothy. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd just like you to open to that. And let me say something about the setting. You know, if you visit Rome, take the right tour, you, you'll be shown an ancient sister in the northwest of the city. It's called Mamertine Prison. It's actually an old um, you know, a rock cistern that held water, had a hole in the top. They used it as a prison. They would drop people down on a rope. And I've seen pictures of this dismal place. And against one wall, there's a little bitty shelf of rock coming off the floor. And you can imagine if you were going to write someplace, uh, this would be the place you'd sit on the floor and then write on this little shelf. And this is likely the very spot, this small ledge of rock where the Apostle Paul wrote his spiritual last will and testament that we know as Second Timothy. Second Timothy um, is one of my favorite books. It used to be my favorite. Now I'm spending a lot of time in First Peter. But I like Second Timothy because it speaks forcefully and practically to the challenges of the 21st century. It's not highly theological. It's got a lot of practical exhortations. And the reason is because this is Paul's swan song. This is the last letter he wrote before he left. He knew he was on his way out. He finished the course. He kept the faith. He's, he's going to be martyred very soon, and he was. So he's writing the most important things he can think about to pass on to his own charge, Timothy. And he gives an answer, I think, to our question about contending earnestly for the faith that is guarding the gospel, and that is the theme of the book. Here's some of the things he says. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. These are the practical exhortations we find in this book. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, we hear this. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Guard the treasure. Timothy, I'm entrusting it to you. Guard it. Protect it. That's the theme of the book. You want a theme of 2 Timothy? Guard the treasure. It's right there. Verse 14, chapter 1. And in this letter, he tells us exactly what it looks like in the 21st century to contend earnestly for the faith, to guard the treasure that's been entrusted to us. Because that church was also facing trouble on two fronts, trouble in the world and trouble in the church. Christians were under tremendous attack in that culture. First from the Jews and then later, at this time, from the Romans. In AD 64, there was a fire that broke out in Rome. Raged for six days, seven nights, totally destroyed a great part of the city. Some say Nero actually set the fire, but he blamed it on the Christians. 
And this initiated a tremendous, violent, vicious persecution of the followers of Christ. Here's what Tacitus writes regarding that, the historian. They, the Christians, were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs. In other words, they put fresh skins on their bodies and then they fed them to the dogs who tore them to pieces. You think that's bad? Listen to this. Or they are nailed to crosses, set fire to. In other words, they were crucified, covered with pitch, and lit. Why? To serve for nocturnal lights in Nero's gardens. Hey, let's have a party. All right, need some lights. Get some Christians. Crucify them. Cover them with oil. Light them up. And let's party hardy. That's what they did to Christians. And in the midst of this extreme physical persecution of the church, Paul talked about the moral decay in the culture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first four verses. In the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient, and on and on he goes in this rogue's list of vice. Gross things that people are doing trouble in the world. There's also trouble in the church, though. We see that in chapter 4. Here's what Paul says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And by the way, we know this is already happening because we can read about it in Paul's letters to the Galatians, to the Corinthians, among others. The trouble, the letters to the Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote that, but still. Christians were already getting into nonsense and falling away into foolishness. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. Does this sound familiar? They will accumulate to themselves teachers after their own desires and will turn away from the truth and turn to myths. You know, we are accused of believing a myth. Paul said it's the people out there who are believing myths and Christians are following them. Trouble in the world. Trouble in the church. And so what's Paul's answer to Timothy's challenge, which is our challenge? Well, Paul's solution is refreshingly simple. You find it in chapter 3, verse 14, and then following. And I want you to focus in that text on just three words for a moment. And now we, I'll give you the whole thing. But I just want you to think about this. Those three words are, you, Timothy, you, however, continue. Note the verb. You, Timothy, in the midst of all of this, you, by contrast, however, you, what? Continue. Now, why is that verse so important? I'll tell you why. I want that, that word, continue. We'll get to the rest in a moment. But he says continue because there's an impulse in a lot of Christian circles in order to deal with the things that are happening in the world and to kind of be on the cutting edge is to be always being listening for the Spirit to be open to the new things the Spirit is doing. And so there's a tendency to be caught up in novel things that seem spiritual 
because we want to be in step with the Spirit. We want to be hanging out with what the Holy Spirit's doing in our culture at this moment. But do you realize that when Paul was facing the circumstances and the church was that we are facing today, trouble in the world and trouble in the church, when he tells his disciple, Timothy, who he says he's passing the baton to, to carry the church, to guard the, the, the gospel, he doesn't tell him to look forward to what's to come. He doesn't say, look forward, stay in touch, be in tune with the Spirit. He says, you, Timothy, however, you continue. He doesn't look forward, he looks back. Now let me finish the verse. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and have become convinced of. And then a verse or so later he says, for all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, many of you know that verse. All Scripture is inspired of God. You didn't know where it was. It's right here, right in the middle of this instruction that Paul, in his last word to his disciple passing the baton, is giving. Here's how you survive, Tim. Don't worry about new movements of the Spirit. Forget about it. You got your own marching orders. Continue in the things you have learned. Stick to the word that has been revealed. Them's your instructions. And then Paul amps it up another notch at the beginning of chapter 4. And I don't know, maybe you, some of you guys can remember this. When I was a kid, you know, you're trying to impress on your buddies something you want them to, to believe. You're going to tell them something amazing, but you want to get their attention. Say, look at uh, uh, you say something like, look at I swear on my mother's grave. I'll swear on a stack of Bibles. You know, we say things like that. I want to get your attention. What I'm telling you is true. You know, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you. Because that was in their culture the way Jesus, Jesus would put it. But here now... Paul does something like this in the beginning of chapter 4. He says, I solemnly charge you. Well, that's pretty strong words, right? But he keeps going. In the presence of God. Got your attention, Timothy? Oh, and of Christ Jesus. Just add that on for extra. Oh, who is to judge the living and the dead? That guy. Oh, one more thing. And by his appearing. And by his coming, his kingdom rather. In other words, hey, Timothy, do I have your attention? What I'm about to say is really, really important, okay? Preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience in your teaching. This is serious business. Stick to the basics. Now, this is a pastoral epistle. In other words, Paul is writing to Timothy as a young pastor, if you will, a shepherd. And so the most direct application of what I just read is going to be to pastors. But this is what Paul is telling the pastors to give to the people. This is our diet. Preach the word. That's the answer. Further down, be sober in all things. 
endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And this he's speaking with regards to serious problems in the church. In other words, hey, Tim, when all else fails, read the directions and follow them. But I want to point out something else. Simply continuing in the truth of the gospel is not enough. Let me say it again. Simply, that's a big deal, right? But it's not enough. Continuing in the truth of the gospel, that's not enough. I want you to notice something about 2 Timothy. Paul wrote his letter to a person, not to a group. He didn't give a speech. He didn't write an article. He passed the baton of the gospel to a faithful person, a young man named Timothy. Which, by the way, is exactly what he told Timothy to, to do himself. 2 Timothy 2.2, which I think is the second verse I ever memorized as a, as a new Christian. And I don't think I actually memorized it. I think it just stuck because it was such an important part of my life. First one was Ephesians 2.8.9. The second one was 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. There's that public message right there. These things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's that baton being passed on. So you've got, you've got Paul passing it on to Timothy, who passes it on to faithful men, who then pass it on to others. You have four generations of believers that are there. The baton being handed down from one generation to another generation. So it's not enough to continue in the truth. That's critical. But it has to be handed down. And indeed, guarding the gospel is not complete until it has been passed on effectively. Now, when I was a... When I became a follower of Christ in UCLA in 1973... I was allowed, opinionated, obnoxious, long-haired hippie. Now, 43 years later, I am no longer a long-haired hippie. <laughs> I like to think I'm not quite as obnoxious as I used to be, too. But I owe that transformation largely to one man, Craig Englert. I'm actually going to be in his church in three weeks in Maui because for over two years at great risk to life and limb he took me under his wing along with his wife Kathy and they mentored me day by day and I have had other mentors since then near and far and there are different um, I think motifs for passing this on but I can tell you with a certainty I would not be standing here today if it weren't for Craig and Kathy Engler in my life because they established a trajectory for me when I was young and wild and crazy. I had a heart for the Lord, but man, I was explosive. I could go any direction, you know. You throw a grenade, you don't know who's going to get hit. Slash and burn, you know. Because Craig Englert and the others who followed were not content to guard the truth. They knew they needed to entrust it to others. Even me, as unlikely as it seemed at that time, in order for the gospel to go forward. So they passed that baton to me, as Paul had passed to Timothy. In fact, it was the same baton. 
that Paul passed to Timothy and Timothy passed to others. And now, as unlikely as it seems, it was being passed to me to carry so that I could pass to others. Like that guy right there, for example. Chris, we've kind of had a relationship with over the years. A little more distant than Craig and Kathy, but still passing the baton. In the summer uh, of 2008 in Beijing Olympics, I don't know if you follow this, but it was the American team that was running. They suffered a humiliating defeat in the 4x100 relays because in the anchor leg, Darius Patton handed the baton to Tyson Gay, but Tyson Gay never got it. In the middle of the handoff, he dropped the baton. Tyson Gay was our best sprinter. We had the fastest team. This was a no-brainer. This is hands down for us, but it didn't matter. We dropped the baton, and we lost the race. We didn't even finish the race. And Paul kind of uses the same analogy with Timothy right there in chapter 2, verse 5. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. He's referring to the games there, the Olympic Games of the time. Timothy, you can't drop the baton. And brothers and sisters, we cannot drop this baton. If we do, we lose. Guard the gospel. Contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Now that entails two things minimally, that you continue in the things that you have learned. Back to the basics. And pass the baton. <laughs> Them's the rules. Now, you might ask yourself, who am I passing the baton to right now? Who am I intentionally and actively passing the baton to? I don't mean who's in my life that may maybe something about the Lord in my life is kind of spilling over by accident and having an influence on them. I thank God for that kind of stuff in the Holy Spirit, but that's not what I'm talking about. That is not intentional. Who have you targeted in your life? For many of you, this might be your grandchildren. You say, well, you know, I, I, I'm intentionally praying for my grandchildren, and I am working with my grandchildren in ways that are age-appropriate to pass the baton onto them. I got two children, too. I got a 12-year-old and a and a nine-year-old. I know you're thinking, he's got a nine-year-old? He's an old guy. Yeah, I'm two years into Medicare, you know? And you're thinking, what's that guy going to do when that nine-year-old becomes a teenager? If I'm lucky, I'll be dead. <laughs> Got it all worked out. But they're right in my sights, man. My daughters are there. I want to be intentional in passing that on to my daughters. But I want to be intentional in passing the baton to others. So you just, I'm not, you don't answer to me. I'm just asking you. You think about it. What are the names of the people that are in my sights to intentionally pass the baton on to? As best as I'm able to with what I know. Different people have different levels of maturity and we offer different things. I started passing the baton real early in my Christian life because that was the model in my life. Somebody was passing it to me. Okay, I'm going to pass it on. Well, my baton at that point wasn't very robust because <laughs> I didn't know that much, but I knew enough to pass some on. 
And now I pass things that I was never able to pass on before because my training or whatever. So we each do what we can where we're at with our information, but we got to pass that baton. And if we disregard Paul's solution, we should not be surprised when we remain children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. We should not be surprised when we're taken captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men rather than according to Christ, Colossians 2, 8. We should not be surprised when we will not endure sound doctrine or maybe our children will not endure sound doctrine. By the way, we can't guarantee anything about our kids. You know that. We in the best of circumstances do all the right things. You can't control your kids. That's, they're individuals in God's but we can control what we can control, right? You know, I asked Father Coiro in that conversation. I said, Greg, can you, because this was so bizarre. You, you imagine my situation. I can't disagree with him and have a theological battle with him on the stage in front of all these Jewish people. This would not help. But I could not let that lie. It was such a perversion of the truth, especially in the face of the gospel I had presented, I think, so clearly to the people that afternoon. And so I asked Father Greg, can you give me some passage from the New Testament that can justify the confidence that you've given to the, these dear Jewish people here in front of us? And I asked that in front of him, the, the audience. And he said, well, uh, yeah, Jesus said um, that whoever is not against me is for me. Now, Jesus did say that, um, sort of. And, he, and Father Coriol said, well, these people aren't against Jesus, so they must be for him without realizing it. Now, that's as far as it went. I didn't take it any further. But I know Jesus said that, and so what do you think I did when I went home? I looked it up. Because he actually said, Jesus, he said, those who are against me aren't against me or for me, but he also said those who aren't for me are against me. Huh. Is that a contradiction? I'll look it up. The circumstances were different. When Jesus says, those who aren't against me are for me, it was when there were other disciples of Jesus, not part of the apostolic band, that were working miracles in Jesus' name. And the disciples were a little miffed. They said, hey, man, they're outsiders. They're not part of our in crowd here. Maybe we should stop them. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Nobody can work a, a miracle <clears throat> In, in my name, and then speak ill of me. If they're not against us, they're for us, right? But when Jesus was speaking to Jews who were rejecting his messianic office and calling, he said, those who are not for me are against me, and those who are not gathering with me, they scatter. So there are two different categories of people that were being addressed there, and my question for Father Coiro is, which kind of group were we addressing that morning? Was it a group of other believers in Jesus that were working miracles in his name, or was it a group of Jews that were rejecting Jesus' messianic claims? Certainly not the first, but the second. Father Coyle used the wrong verse. Now, I, I can understand people get their verses mixed up. I do sometimes, too. I don't fault him for getting his verses mixed up. I fault him for getting his theology wrong.
when Jesus engaged a group of people like we were engaging that day, he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, John 8, 24. When Peter was speaking to a group like we were speaking to that day, he said, there is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4, 12. And when Paul was writing to a group like we had been writing to that day, he said, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's sense of righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for everyone who believes. The key to surviving the onslaught in the 21st century the key to contending earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints is to guard the gospel. And the key to that is found in two simple phrases. Continue in the things that you have learned. That is back to the basics, back to the word as it's been entrusted to us. And then pass the baton entrusted to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. And that's it. Straightforward, uncomplicated, simple. And not until we do that can we say what Paul said at the end of this magnificent letter, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. I don't know about you, but I want those words to be at least in my heart on my dying breath. I finished the course. I kept the faith so that when I pass over, I also hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, man, sweetest words. Dear Father, I pray for us, for these dear people, and for me, that you will help me to contend and us to contend earnestly for the faith that we would guard the gospel that we would continue in the things that we have learned and that, Father, we will pass the baton effectively by your mercy and by your grace. Amen. Amen.